no amigo. Yo hablo espanol también. Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Arshnow. On today's episode, we are discussing spy movies, the history of the genre, its significance in America, and what our changing culture could mean for the future of the genre as a whole. Hey, Sean. Hey, Chris. Hello, hello. Hey, all. America Month continues. Yay? We're deep in it. We're recording this just a couple of days after the actual Independence Day. Have you all been having fireworks going off still where you are? Surprisingly, no. I recently moved and I was totally expecting there to be just a cacophony of fireworks for like the week preceding and the week following the Mm. fourth. But it was just really, really tame the day before and really, really tame the day after. But the day of just unhinged, (laughs) I fortunately got some sleep. But Trina was saying that they were happening until like four in the morning, just like they just got it all out on that day, which is arguably the better of the two options, in my opinion. I think so. I think so, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people just, like, letting fireworks go in the middle of the day in Dolores Park on July 4th, which was a choice to be made by some. That's a weird one, because the whole point of fireworks is, you know, the bright light. You can't see it in the day. Well... I mean, it all depends on the person. Like, uh, my mom was regaling me with stories that I apparently had just blocked out of my youth growing up in Oklahoma, where my uncle Barney would take five-gallon buckets, fill them with acetylene, and put a wick in them, <laughs> seal them, light them, and run away. And this is like in the backwoods of Oklahoma. So it's not necessarily about the bright lights and the oohs and the ahs for everybody. For some people, it's just about sheer destruction. <laughs> sanctioned explosions in the middle of Dolores Park. It's what it's all about. You know, that's a really good point. I even even my pacifist self got so much joy as a teenager putting I, I had, you know, like a bucket of little green army men and you'd buy um like the tank fireworks, a little cardboard tank with a with a like Roman candle in the Mm-hmm. I, I lived in Pennsylvania too, so you could get a lot more than you can get in California. And if you couldn't find <laughs> it, you drove to New Jersey. Always um, Jersey. And so you'd you'd face two of those tanks toward each other, put a little green army man in the middle, and then light it and see what happened. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> there is a certain a certain appeal. That's not what we're talking about today, though. Well, I mean, we kind of are, you know, this idea of, you know, like <laughs> explosion, masculine aggression, like the things that kind of define this uh, certain thing we're going to talk about today. The thirst for destruction. Hot. The yeah. beautiful violence. Mm-hmm. Sexy violence. Sexy violence. Often we are talking about spy movies. The idea to talk about this came out of our Discussions around, well, you know, what what sort of topics come up during America Month? Well, propaganda. <laughs> and if you are thinking about propaganda in the sort of artistic realm, you know, what does that mean? You, The obvious answer is like propaganda posters and stuff like that. But there are areas of propaganda 
um, that I think are a little bit more subtle and mm. are sometimes completely missed by the audience and and often missed by the people making it as well, at least on the like individual like actor, sometimes director level. So the perfect example of that is the spy film genre, which is I I love spy films. One of the first things that I ever really wanted to be was a spy. I saw James Bond. I saw um You Only Live Twice when I was maybe eight. My mom went out of town. I don't know where my little brother was, and my dad was got it at the at the video store, and I was like, "All right, you're old enough. I think we're gonna watch this." Um, fell in love, of course. Uh, that movie's deeply problematic now, and was then as well, of course. But um, but at that point, you were eight years old. You didn't right. You didn't have a fully formed viewpoint of the world, let alone what was problematic or not. It was just super rad. It was just really cool, and and I had no context for why Sean Connery in Yellowface is a problem, even if it is for plot reasons. Oh my God, is that the one with Michelle Yeoh in it? Oh God, sweet. Okay, I think so. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, I so I love the genre. I wanted to be James Bond when I was a little kid, and as I grew up, I continued to love the genre and. There were some really excellent sort of leaps in the genre throughout my teens and, and early 20s. But as I've grown up and, and as I've developed my own view on politics and my own understanding of the world, and then by extension, my own uh, education and, and that sort of thing, my relationship with the genre has become sometimes tenuous and and a difficult thing to often parse. Before we get into all of that and before I go running off with this episode, do the two of you share my love of this genre or what what is your relationship with it? Oh, huh. It is a bastion of masculinity, so therefore I am genetically engineered to be dis- like scared of it. <laughs> um <laughs> For better or for worse, but it intrigued. Um, so, like, my references for spy movies that I watch and or remember or spy media would fall under Charlie's Angels circa 2000, which weren't very good, but, you know, wildly influential on my existence. Um, that terrible Angelina Jolie comedy spy thriller called Salt. I don't know why I've seen it as many times as I have. I like that, even though I know it is utter garbage. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) propaganda supreme. Um, uh, And like, uh, much more familiar and find a lot more joy in like heist movies, which are like it's, which are like the cousin of spy movies, I guess. But maybe less pro-U.S. propaganda, question mark? It's usually more of like a celebration of the anti-hero rather mm. than the uh, kind of propping a... The right, the, cor- the correct righteous ones. Yeah. And the right, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, I definitely enjoy the, uh, the spy genre as a whole. Um, I haven't 
seen many Bond films, though. Uh, I think <laughs> I've seen Skyfall was kind of like my first introduction to James Bond. I've oh, wow. seen Spectre. And I think that might be it. Aside from there was one that I watched with you, Mason. It was like Moonraker. I think it was Moonraker. Yeah. Yeah. Roger Moore goes to outer space. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, we didn't really watch it so much as just make fun of it the whole time, right. which is great. Mm. Um, but my first introduction to the spy genre was through video games, uh, through Metal Gear Solid. And Correct. Yeah. The, espionage aspect of that (laughs) and it's kind of interesting considering now like where the metal gear series has gone since then and how (laughs) off the rails it is but right at the time very you know very much like like mason was saying about james bond like when i was like 12 solid snake was like it for me like the coolest guy like and that was around the time that I first started writing and stuff. And so I remember writing like my own like spy thrillers in like college ruled notebooks and stuff. But at the same time, this was also when I first got introduced to the uh, naked gun series that an airplane was kind of like where I started like really understanding comedy and like what was funny in a lot of ways. I also found like Monty Python around that time, but um, specifically with spy films, those were my introductions to it. And I'd mentioned to y'all how much I absolutely love the first three born movies. You and me both. Yeah. They're like, they're my comfort films. They're I have, I have like maybe like five or six films, but those three definitely close to the top (laughs) chris will you release this said spy fiction on our patreon if no popular enough no it's it's lost (laughs) to you know it's lost to history it's it was in a notebook in oklahoma somewhere tucked away in a closet and i have no idea where it's at Mm, but you know where this house is and we we can do reconnaissance uh, I mean, if you want to go to uh, Benito, Oklahoma, be my guest. Give us the notebooks. <laughs> it's it's funny, but when we were kind of preparing for this episode, we were talking about the different sort of subgenres of spy movies, and there's definitely that like outlier of comedy, right? The the Naked Gun, the Johnny English, the um, I I might even put like Peter Sellers. Pink Panther movies in that, mm. in that mm. yeah, yeah, you know. Um, but then there's also there's the James Bond, which is the like total male fantasy epitome of cool guy, kind stylish, of stylish. And then there's the, the like more hard hitting, like pseudo realistic Zero Dark Thirty, and and then Jason Bourne that lands somewhere in between, um, you know, cool and and realism. But it's also interesting because. I feel like you can also divide it into two very clear areas, right? Like there are the classic spy movies, um, which are are movies like the first half of the James Bond series and films like The French Connection, um, Mm, which are slow and plotting often and really (laughs) focused on sort of interpersonal interaction even the james bond movies which you know especially those early sean connery ones 
He might do a little bit of kung fu. He shoots a couple of people, but most of the time it's just him smoking cigarettes and wandering around some beautiful place. Then there are the films of our childhoods, which are where we see this transition happen, but from like those early spy films into like the heavy action movie that, mm-hmm. you know, you, you saw with like uh, Timothy Dalton's James Bond and then Pierce Brosnan. But then you also see with films like the Bourne trilogy and, and stuff where it is very much like quick cut, high stakes, plenty of one-liners if you're in the James Bond genre, but um, <laughs> much, much, much quicker. Um, and that's interesting, right? Because yeah. it, it speaks to changing opinions of of what this should be, but it also talks to um, kind of differing ideas about what those sorts of characters' roles are in society. Mm-hmm. Where is that? Do you can, I'm putting you on the spot chronologically. Where is that line in the sand that you're drawing for us? Probably 1980s, like okay. early 1980s. Cold War. I'm not. I'm obviously not an, a film expert, but yeah, I think that the if if we want to pin this to something in the real world, if you think about what those films were about in the 1960s and, and 70s, it was fighting communism, right? And mm-hmm. it was about, if not the American way, at least the Western democracies prevailing. When the Soviet Union falls in the late 1980s, and, and even just before that, as it's beginning to collapse, we have to find new boogeymen, right? Mm-hmm. And the Cold War ends, and there is maybe less room for that level of intrigue when the Cold War is over, right? You, you're not s- secretly trying to figure out the plans of your enemy and and figure out how many nukes Russia has. So maybe things move faster and, and the world starts to move faster then too. And so what what do these stories look like when you tell them in a world of high technology and of drones and of the internet, right? So maybe there isn't a hard line so much as there's a point in the late 80s, early 90s, where the world changes very quickly, um, socio-politically, and then technology just increases exponentially. And I'm also wondering what kind of bearing the boom of the Megaplex had on films, Mm. Uh, you know, from a production standpoint, all of a sudden putting asses in seats was a really high priority for uh, movie companies, for film production companies and distribution companies. And so it's also interesting because that's been on a decline for some time as we've gotten into the the streaming era. And so it makes me wonder if that might also lead to some of the transition that we've seen into some of the more gritty, realistic, hard-hitting spy thrillers that are kind of stand against a lot of the uh a lot of the bond type stuff that was so prominent in the ladies and early aughts yeah i think about a hbo series that i think you turned me on to chris called the night manager yes starring tom hiddleston i I just got chills like when you said that that is such a good show it is so good tom hiddleston as your protagonist Hugh Laurie is the bad guy oh. as, a, as a totally evil arms dealer. Um, <sighs> absolute delight. It's written yes. by the same author that did Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, who just died recently. 
whose name is escaping me. Uh, John Lacare. Yes. Or John Lacare. Um, I, I don't know how to pronounce it. I've just, it's like one of those things, you know, when you've seen a word written so many times, but you've never heard it pronounced. And you have yeah. no idea. I don't know if either of you know how to pronounce it, but. But the accent, so Kare is closer. Okay. I used to work in a bookstore and people would come in and be like, you got the new John LaCar book in? This is in Mississippi. But so. also <laughs> these British, they always butcher every language ever. So there yeah, could be that. It's also a pen name, if I remember correctly. Right. But anyway. <laughs> LaCar. LaCar. John the car. Beep, beep. <laughs> <laughs> so the night manager... I think that it is an excellent example of what you're talking about, Chris, is this like shift, you know, as, as we, we move away from, to some extent, the, the big budget film, you know, these movies that are designed to be watched on the biggest screen possible with the biggest sound system possible. The Night Manager is a slow show. It, it's like mm-hmm. six episodes and it is very methodical. And, and that yeah. is the source material as well, but it's, it's also something that would not work as a film, I, I don't think, you know, and it needs that space to breathe because the characters in it are so important and it's so much about these these people and where they find themselves that it feels a lot like those earlier, and by earlier I mean 60s films in the genre where you had that, that space to sort of move around in and, and where it was more important to build tension and play with that sort of cat and mouse dynamic than it was to blow up as many things as possible and see how many times you can roll a Aston Martin over before it gets too unbelievable. (laughs) The answer is never enough. (laughs) No, never enough. (laughs) Never. Give me more car crashes. Really thinking about it, looking back at some of the espionage films of the more recent past and how blurred the line gets between like your golden eyes and your terminators, (laughs) you know, like you change, you change a couple of plot points, you change a couple of characters names. And then like all of a sudden you're looking at a very, very similar movie. It's just that the characters are a little better dressed in one of them. (laughs) Oh yeah. Arnold's jacket is so much better. (laughs) Hey, Pierce Brosnan's bow tie that is the size of a small rodent is iconic. Yes. And and I, I highly suggest anybody go back and, and look at the tuxedo that he wears in Goldeneye in particular. It, the bow tie could not be bigger on this tuxedo without <laughs> it being like a clown outfit. It's, it's phenomenal. That is the era of ill-fitting suits, too. That's true, yeah. Why? Why did we? <laughs> Trina's rewatching Friends right now, and <laughs> the first couple of seasons, like it shows, like Chandler and Ross in a suit, and it's almost like they're wearing a zoot suit. It's oh just like so baggy; uh, <laughs> it, it hurts. Just swimming in it. Yep. Yeah, the nineties in general. Why are we bringing those back? So much of that was dramatic and terrible. Well, we're bringing back a. Um, idealized version of it. It's sort of like how when we look back fondly on the fashion of the 80s, we forget about how brown the 1980s actually were. You know? Yeah. Ooh, everything. <laughs> right. It's it's all of the day glow and the neon uh, nylon the stockings part. and everything. And it's not that brown 
glass ashtray that you would find at a McDonald's <laughs> in certain parts of the country. Or wood paneling. Yes. <laughs> On everything. Yes. Yep. Bring back the wood paneled living room. My mom has one. <laughs> she like recently bought a house with like maple paneling on every wall. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Is she keeping it? She's keeping it. Mmm. She an likes artifact. It. Yep. <laughs> yeah, forget this kinfolk, clean white, and all that is that's for the birds. So there is this sort of tension that comes out of this dynamic between the slow plotting spy thriller and the big budget action movie that I would argue James Bond really made possible in the modern era, where there are plenty of, especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, there are plenty of high suspense and espionage movies that are slow and methodical that are very good, but got forgotten about or weren't very well reviewed. I'm thinking of, there's a great Robert De Niro movie called Ronin. He is acting opposite of Jean Reno. I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before. But, you know, like, it's a slow movie. Nobody watched it. And in 1997, it wasn't what somebody would, would be looking for from a from a spy film. Yeah. It also kind of threads this needle of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And I think that mm-hmm. that is something that we're starting to see a little bit more, particularly with Daniel Craig's James Bond, where yeah. everybody is in this kind of gray area, almost the point of it being ridiculous because it, it, it's like this living incarnation of you can't trust anyone. Um, but it's it's almost like we're living in this era that is post good guys and bad guys, where we've mm-hmm. lost our big boogeyman, right, which was communist Russia and, and the march of communism across the world. Yeah. And because we don't have what we thought to be bad guys in real life, it becomes harder to convincingly tell those stories even in our biggest, highest budget action movies because it, it just doesn't, that's not the world we're living in. Everything is gray and everything is complicated and everything yeah. needs to, to be multi-layered. Yeah, I remember uh, Homeland, the Showtime series with Claire Danes, getting so much negative press because of their very stereotypical descriptions and depictions of uh, Middle Eastern men and women always being the antagonist in the most blatantly stereotypical ways. Mm. The characters always had no depth, no character traits aside from just they bad, we good. Nine <laughs> Eleven wasn't that long ago, and it was an even shorter amount of time that we were dealing with heightened escalations in Syria and war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan being at their height and all this other stuff. And so on on one hand, it made it was like a logical jump to go from communism to the middle east arab arab equals bad and we've in entertainment media in the united states we've made those jumps fairly quickly throughout time uh Mm -hmm. you know you look at like the john wayne films of like the 60s and stuff it's the engines you know or 
throw a rock and hit any year, any decade, and there's going to be some clear cut typecast stereotype that is the bad. And Mason, you're right. As we get further and further along into the late 20 teens and now the 2020s, people are starting to question and people are starting to not support franchises or uh, media that doesn't heed to the fact that people are multifaceted and they contain multitudes and they're more than just good or bad. Oftentimes, the ones that stay in that gray area and are comfortable in that gray area find the most success. It makes it interesting that I I feel like we still have an easy time telling stories of us versus the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And how, at least in America, there is is that separation. It's, It's like, to some extent, we've all agreed that communism is the line. Everything can be complicated except for our relationship with Russia. I think that that's <laughs> starting to change, but it's one of the last things, right? Like, yeah. we've been talking about the complicated and truly awful way that our own government looks at and interacts with the Arab world since 9-11, right? Mm-hmm. Well, even before, probably, with, with yeah. the Gulf War. Right, right. And so there, there has been, it's not always been right on top of it, and 9-11 was a couple steps backwards, but there's been this sort of continuously more progressive string there. But anytime the, the subject of communism comes up, I feel like it is a whole lot easier for us to just wave it off. You know, like, in a weird way, it is like Nazis, right? Mm-hmm. We've, we, all, we can all agree that they're evil. Right. Yeah. And so they can always well, be the bad guy. And well. that in and of itself ignores the fact that, you know, who helped us defeat the Nazis? It was communist Russia. But <laughs> it, no, that's a really, that is a really interesting sort of caveat to this whole thing that I've always found is that I don't, I, I've never, and I'm interested to hear what, what you all think on this, but I've never felt like there's been, that real reckoning with how we how we view and and depict Russia, particularly Soviet Russia in American media, because it is just it's just a a boogeyman, and it and it is just an easy um, sort of shorthand for that. Well, I feel like no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, there's something there's something about Russia for you to be angry about if you're on the right, it's just communism. It's like, that's easy enough. If you're on the left, it's their stance on LGBTQIA rights. And and the authoritarian state. Yeah. Yeah. And then you take a look at uh, what's happening in Ukraine and Syria. And there are those who don't want to learn anything about Russia. And all they know is communism and it's like okay that's bad and then you take the other segment that learns more about russia and they find even more things to be like oh russia bad i wonder how those opinions are going to hold on once vladimir putin is no longer around uh, assuming he won't just become a cyborg and rule forever (laughs) but (laughs) oh you know i imagine that's probably a huge part of it with 
kind of holding on to all these ideals that so many people have reasons to be anti-Russia, which helps to fuel all these anti-Russia, pro-USA sentiments. Yeah, and it's the it, when we're talking about the gray area, it's who is allowed and afforded to be given the chance to be viewed from that gray area lens. Um, communism is a dog whistle. Marxism, Lenin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are immediately bad. Or anytime you see an internet argument about like communism, like look at China and Russia and how terrible they're doing, and you're like, well, we don't have a full understanding of what's going on there. And really, if yeah. you squint, sometimes how different are we from them? I hate whataboutism. Uh, yeah. Oh, it drives me crazy. And this is in no way, I, I'm in no way making an argument that we should not view the very evil parts of Russian politics as anything less than. It's it's just an interesting sort of thing where it, it's interesting to see where we're willing to draw the line with with that gray area. And mm-hmm. and USA always good, Russia always bad. It's it's an interesting complex thing. That also ignores the the most successful stories, I think, often are in the genre are often the ones that allow important secondary characters to be from that bad side, right? The mm-hmm. the ones the unlikely teammates and and that sort of thing, but that gets very difficult to uh, navigate as well because it is so easy to to write the pro American Russian, you know, who isn't mm-hmm. pro democracy, they're pro America, right? Yeah, um, important. Difference. And that really underlines what what I've always, as at least as an adult, what I find so fascinating about espionage stories is that that potential for that gray area to be examined in ways that are deeply uncomfortable, right? Like Mm -hmm. ways to write anti-hero stories that aren't just the, he's a good guy who also has a drinking problem. Right. The, whoever you were reading is a, is on the, what you consider to be the right side, but they're being asked to do things that are maybe not of the right side, but, but for the, the right end yeah they think or you think a trend that i've been seeing recently that i've been really enjoying is where you have writers who have really well thought out human characters and the nationality is secondary. I feel it too often in not only espionage films, but also like kind of like a a sister genre is like uh, cop films where, Mm -hmm. you know, you have somebody in authority who's, you know, it may not necessarily be for the United States government, but it is for a governing entity or an authoritative entity. Lately, there's been a, a trend of, giving these people on any side of the equation the ability to be a human and their occupation is just a detail that helps them fit into the plot a little bit easier rather than vice versa where, you know, they're an agent 
And that's their main characteristic. And the fact that they have a drinking problem is secondary or that they have a wife that they're trying to protect is secondary to that occupation. And I feel like following like a lot of kind of the more recent golden age of television with like Sopranos and Breaking Bad and all this stuff where we start to find these much longer form explorations of human characteristics with a cinematic lean to them are changing people's expectations of how these stories should pan out in a really, really great way. Uh, I've seen a lot of really, really cool stuff over the past couple of years that would fit into the spy genre that kind of breaks a lot of the norms of what we would expect from spy films like the old James Bonds, where they do focus on the human aspect first and the spy element is secondary, even tertiary. You know, I think the Bourne movies are really, at least the first three are a really excellent example of this. Um, Those are the Bourne movies. We don't talk about the other two. Right. <laughs> and I saw the, the, the fourth one with Matt Damon in the movie theater. Um, and it, it was one of those, those movie going experiences where you sit there and you watch the whole thing and, and leave wondering why you didn't just get up and leave in the middle of it. But oh, I already spent 10 or $15 on this movie ticket. Mm-hmm. I guess I gotta get through it. <laughs> Sunk cost fallacy. That's right. But also Tommy Lee Jones is in it. So I don't know, maybe he'll, he'll save it. He doesn't. Um, <laughs> But the original Born books were very much a kind of classic spy story. Did mm-hmm. Did you ever read them, Chris? No. Um, like the first book follows the first movie pretty closely, but then the second and third book are just Jason Bourne chasing down this classic supervillain. I think their name was the Jackal. Um, <laughs> you know, globe trotting. The the last battle is in this maze and they have a gunfight and you know he outsmarts them. It's like did Dan Brown write very <laughs> Dan Brown kind of you know like like Dan Brown meets Ian Fleming. Just <laughs> they're gross. They're they're not and they're not well written and they're not they're not interesting. It's the same story you've you've read over and over. Um, but I think what the movies did particularly well besides being the only example of acceptable shaky cam was they took the things that made the first book so interesting, which was this person who had been programmed to be a weapon of the United States government and learned who he was over the course of the story and continued to run with that and sort of pull it out and and allow it to be its most interesting parts, which yeah. are examinations on what we do to the people that we expect to protect us and and the ways in which a sort of military-based foreign policy gets carried out um, Mm -hmm. in in quiet places and the the effect that that has on people at an individual level. Of course, it's a little bit more fantastical than that, but like that is, for me, that's what has always been exciting about those movies. Yeah, that's what it is at the core. Which is an excellent example of that, like existing in the gray area. But doing the really powerfully interesting and totally underutilized thing of questioning the American project in that process. You know, they're not anti-American films, but they are anti-American policy, maybe. 
Another great example of kind of this existing in the gray area is a series that I, I told you all about. It's on Amazon called Patriot. Uh, I, I'm really saddened that it, like many series, it got two seasons and then got canceled. Um, but it follows this uh, government operative, this U.S. government operative who is laying low in Amsterdam where how it starts off he's laying low in amsterdam after a butch job in the middle east and he kind of explores his deep depression by writing folk music and then he gets wrapped up back into the fray to kind of uh prevent iran from becoming uh electing somebody who's going to restart their nuclear program but Everything that could go wrong for this government operative does, and usually it's because of the incompetence of the people around him. And meanwhile, all of the antagonists are human in every sense of the word. You get to meet a brother duo who are trying to fund the Iranian government, and it shows them growing up and being bullied in London, but finding solace in in soccer. and. Yeah, it's just it's a really, really great two seasons of a show that should have seen a whole lot more success. And it's got great, great, great music, too. All the songs are about how the protagonist wants to kill himself or how he had to stab some guy in the throat to prevent him from, you know, funding Iran. And yeah, <laughs> how, he, how he loses a finger in a uh, in a shootout gone wrong. It's, it's good stuff. So it's inside Lewin Davis if Lewin Davis had been a government operative. Yes, absolutely. That is the best way to put it. Uh, Season three, Bob Dylan would have made an appearance, but alas. (laughs) Sean, you want to talk about Charlie's Angels at all? (laughs) Yeah, I'm wondering how Charlie's Angels fits into this because I've never seen Charlie's Angels. Oh, really? Yeah. It's like, right. I've seen it's bits bad. and pieces. Um, and I'm trying to remember if the bits and pieces I've seen are just from trailers or have actually seen bits and pieces of the movie. Movies, because there's like three, right? There's, there's at least two. There's two from the original cast in the two early, early mid aughts. And then the, there is a reboot that we will not mention because <laughs> we will not besmirch Chris, Kirsten Stewart's name like that. And of course, there's the TV show from the 1960s. 70s? 70s? Question mark. Hello, Charlie. Hello, girls. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you could talk about was that the first one? That's the first example of like, don't quote me on it, like woman led or woman focused anything resembling spy movie action, uh, anything in TV, even. I think it was probably part of a, a, a trend. Yeah, right? mid 70s. Like, yeah. So, yeah. Um, it, it certainly wasn't on its own, but it it is. It's iconic for a reason, right? Like hair. The, just the whole the whole idea, you know, not just one competent woman, but three competent women who, yes, they are handled by a man who is never seen on screen, but you know, they they go and they do the the stuff that men do, but they do it with the feminine style. But like sexy and fun. Yeah. 
And apparently, like, the Charlie's Angels movies didn't do all that well when, hypothetically, why not? They shouldn't. So, the U.S. American viewing public was also not as fond of it as, oh, shocking. They wanted more James Bond instead. Um, But, yeah, centering femininity in this very masculine thing. Because, right, when you think of the trope of a woman in a spy movie, she's either sexy and helpless or sexy and betrays you because she had sex with you and then betrays you. Mm-hmm. And those are your two options, and that's what women get reduced to. So I guess <laughs> it's such the, the lowest bar of sexy but competent <laughs> being the bar that we must gracefully hop over i mean it it raises the question of who is the film for right and i think that to some extent the the latest reboot that no one saw Mm -hmm. at least in some of its advertising and the way that it was talked about online like it was angled to for women for women right um which charlie's angels before that you know, it it's about women, so it's cool if if women come to see it. But it's men who control the the pocketbook, and they're going to buy the tickets or something, right? So like right. you have to, they have to be the first and foremost appeal, which creates complications when you have a female led, you know, sort of genre like that. See every Tomb Raider entry ever. Yeah. And even the more, like, they keep rebooting that one as well and making her, and even the Tomb Raider video games, they keep iterating that one. And in each one, she's less and less, like, super cool woman, more relatable attempting to be archaeologist, sexy, break into Mm -hmm. places lady. And you're like, okay. And (laughs) it's almost like they, like, lose some of the fun and intrigue and they like it feels like they haven't figured out how to make woman focused spy genre move into the gritty real age in a way that's both still enjoyable and real they like Mm -hmm. are trying so hard they with i hate saying this way but like wokeism you know, or needing to be considerate of things more than just white straight men. Uh, we're still not very good in media and like uh, doing that for women in a meaningful way, but also not making it feel like a finger wag or like shallow and flashy and meaningless. Like mm-hmm. the fact that that one scene in Avengers Endgame where we just pan to the female characters is apparently feminism. I'm like, ah, burn it all. That's why I didn't watch this one. <laughs> it's, it's so, it, it, I, I think that I audibly groaned when that came up on the, on the screen because it's so obvious what they're doing in the event. Yeah, it's pandering, right. masquerading as feminism. It logistically doesn't make sense. They're all coming from different places, right? So, like, no, they didn't all just take the girl ship, spaceship together to burn that, burn it. Well, and, and you know, Captain Marvel could end the whole thing right there right. herself anyway. So why? Why wasn't why she? Why are we was wasting busy? our time? I have right. no idea what y'all are talking about, by the way. I, That's I, fine. You'd... Did I miss anything? Cap- by not well, Captain Marvel, You're a better Captain Marvel's supposed to be aggressively powerful, right? She's just like... 
uber powerful. So why don't you just end the whole thing? Okay, who knows? They can't just have a woman do the end job. Um, but also, um, gay, does that exist in spy movies in a meaningful, good way besides queer-coded villains? I never, I haven't watched the Daniel Craig ones, but isn't there at least one where the villain is aggressively queer coded and like is like literally trying to like fuck Bond? Um, Question mark. There is some um, obvious homoeroticism and Javier Bardem's villain yes. in Skyfall. the The Daniel Craig films are interesting. If if we can, we can step on this sort of masculinity versus femininity and, and that tension in the genre for a minute. The Bond films are interesting because since the 1990s, they've been run by Barbara Broccoli. Mm. I love her name. Um, but she is the she's the daughter of one of the original producers of a uh-huh. series. She, she took it over and is a hot shot at MGM, I think. But she she is at the helm of, of mm. Bond and has been since at least Pierce Brosnan's era. So I've always been a big James Bond fan. And one year for my birthday, I was gifted the anniversary box set. I think it was the 50th anniversary of every movie on Blu-ray. And I spent two months, about a month and a half, watching them all back to back in chronological order. I started to write a paper on it for a class that never got finished and got shelved. But it was a really interesting sort of examination of how things in that universe sort of changed and morphed and and um, evolved with the culture, um, but also the people who were working on it and who were behind it. So Barbara Broccoli takes over in the 90s, and that is when you start to see a real rise in what could be considered strong female characters for the time, right? There's still, especially in Brosnan's films, like there's still, they have that damsel in distress, but you know, there are bad women. There, there are female villains and there are, um, women who are, who are as smart or as capable as Bond or in Goldeneye, his love interest is the Russian hacker, you know, and with Daniel Craig, there was some talk about how he was a in some way a softer bond and and like a more a less aggressively masculine bond so that the series could appeal to women and i i think that that i i think that there's probably a connection there between who's running it and you know and how that changes but there's also this shift in culture too right where right in the 90s like strong female characters we were starting to kind of sort of try to figure out how to actually do that, right? Scripts are still written by men, and so they don't really land every time, but (laughs) we're getting there. The other side to this, too, though, is that in the books, which are not great, just from a literary (laughs) standpoint, they're a lot of fun when they're not openly offensive, you know, and they are articles of their time, but they are full of if if you allow them to to sort of be what they are and 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 read them from that point they're full of incredibly complex characters and bond is a terrible human being and knows it and is open about it and recognizes it and spends a lot of his time thinking about just what a piece of shit he is 
right? Aww. Which is something you miss in the films. But they also, there are lots of, of, or at least a few female characters throughout that Bond has, you know, they're always seen through their relationship to Bond, and that is a problem. But they themselves exist in these complicated ways that the films don't, have only just begun to start to touch on, right? They are allowed to be people with their own goals and their own, you know, their own reason for being there. And um, they break Bond's heart and and all of this. And so it's interesting, I guess, to me, that that is what we've been losing as we adapt this genre for screen, right? In the In the past... 50, 60 years is that, you know, the first thing to go is everyone being complicated other than our straight male protagonist, because those complicated characters were always there. They might not have been forefront all the time, um, or they might have been a little bit under the surface, but they're there. We just are not pulling on them. Hmm. I would love to see a gay James Bond. Oh, that'd be great. I'd be first in line. Oh my God. Um, but has there, I can't think of a single like meaningful queer at all spy movie ever. Someone's going to pull up a fact check on that, but like, no, my brain's doing that thing where it's like, there's gotta be something somewhere that you've seen, but I can't, I can't. Yeah, pulling it. a complete and I mean, and blank. That is reason <laughs> sexy enough. spies that are gay. All right, Siri, work your magic. Gay spy movie. <laughs> Anal and spy movies. Q Force. Oh God, no! Burn it! Burn it. <laughs> it! If you see the trailer for that, it is, it is a pride corporate nonsense written by straight people. Just the way they use the terms. The way they are totally like pulling the likenesses of like seminal gay bars and drag queens without using their permission, and like a character is named Twink. No one is named that. What is this? Someone, someone like looked up Urban Dictionary before they made this. Also, uh, for for y'all and anybody listening, don't look up gay spy movie because. Oh, you just get porn? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, the fourth option is uh, Spy Gay Toilet Gay Amateur Video. And then uh, Secret Navy Shower Video on Vimeo. Bathhouse Part 1. Oh, not that kind of... <laughs> Degenerates! Sorry. I don't know if Google will do the same thing. I'm using DuckDuckGo, but DuckDuckGo has betrayed me a little bit today. <laughs> it's that bad, y'all. We just skip straight to voyeur porn. Yeah, <sighs> that's why we need a gay James Bond. That's right. Yes. So that way, when we, we need... search for gay spy movie, it's not a bunch of stuff on Vimeo and Blogspot. No, it is a giant, high quality version of anal. Thank you very is, much. Well, that wouldn't happen in the Bond film, but it would happen in the fan fiction and whatever the YouTube version of fan fiction is that would that would follow <laughs> after. Would we Somebody get anal would, in like the HBO one, the HBO offshoot? Well, of course, I would be. Yeah. you know, required. That, that is the, that's like sixty percent of it, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm here. I'm watching. I'm producing this. It's just that one scene from that 
that TV show NYPD Blue, where you got the full frontal. Um, it it's just that scene for six seasons. <laughs> no complaints. I think that was the first depiction of full frontal male nudity on primetime television. It was NYPD Blue. Anyway, that I mean, right there, the fact that we can't like just pull one, and and the fact that it is. Uh, revolutionary to suggest that the next Bond should, in fact, not only be black, but also gay. Highlights maybe the biggest issue with it is that it is, with the genre, is that it is so steeped in masculinity and and this sort of classical idea of what the masculine person is, that it is difficult, at least on the blockbuster side of it to really untangle that or or to feel like it's even possible to untangle it right mm-hmm. it becomes a different film you know it's not that you can't have a gay spy movie it's that it would be a gay movie that happens to be about spies right yeah it is Ugh. a different genre entirely which i don't think is um extreme to say kind of a problem at this point but there's also something like, do queer people really need to be servants of the state in that way? Isn't that antithetical to the existence of being a, a non-corporate gay? Well, I mean, <laughs> I think that the question there then becomes, what does a film about a gay spy then look like, right? Like, because they exist, I would assume, right? There are not according to DuckDuckGo. A lot of communism. I mean, gay people in our government, right? Oh, like, okay. there are gay people who work at the CIA. I imagine. Sure, why not? Um, so, what does that story look like, right? What does what does a story that deals with the issues around making a queer individual a arm of the state look like? What what is that story? That's some, there's something there, I mm-hmm. think, you know, um, and it's not that people wouldn't watch it. Um, but again, it turns into this very different film. And the, that, the question that I keep landing on is what does this genre look like as it continues to evolve? And, and, and if it is going to continue to be something worth pursuing, what other directions can we take it in so that it is not just this singular piece of what it is propaganda for America or for straight masculinity or for whatever, right? Like what, what else is possible in, in the genre? That's the question that I have. Yeah. Can you remove spy movies for needing to be on functioning essentially for the state for, for government like, can we make it more, uh, I guess, on a smaller scale, more personal and just like, I'm just investigating the shit out of you for a personal grudge. Someone wants you dead just because they personally really dislike you. And I'm a, I'm a hired spy for that. I mean, there's definitely room for that. that. That's a story I would like to see of somebody who is like an agent of the state who is abusing their power for to seek out a personal vendetta yeah i would love that um but are people in hollywood and the people at netflix and the people at apple tv are 
they creative enough to follow through with something like that? I don't know. Here, we're pitching it for you right now, and then you can be chasing them through the the nightclubs and gay bars in Berlin. So you can have all the like all the gay content you could ever possibly want. And it could still be mostly white. Like, you know, check, 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 check. Yep. You can have a woman in there for some reason, and she'll be naked too, because it's Berlin. Um, done. We'll take our cut. Yeah. HBO Max, you know where to find us. Meaning what? Pod at gmail.com. And support us on our Patreon. Patreon.com backslash meaning what pod. Ding! Especially those of you at uh, multimedia conglomerates. Um, we don't, we're not looking to be part of you, but if you want to take some of that corporate money and put it somewhere that's, that's meaningful as a personal donation, we're not going to turn it down. Yeah. We'll pitch things to you, but only the pitch. And then we'll come in during filming and be like, no, 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 no. This is not what I pitched. Take this <laughs> out. Not... More gay sex. Why is his butt not out? <sighs> Why is his butt not out? Yeah. This will be, uh, you know, the pitch. And then we won't touch it again until it's a part of the Meaning What Movie Club. Right. There we go. Yeah. We're not signing any contracts, but we're retaining our right to sue you later for stealing our ideas. <laughs> <laughs> that is what it takes to be moderately famous in the right way so we can make a living off of this. We will take it. <laughs> Have we given up on on pitching to our actual listeners to um, join our Patreon and we're just going straight for the company brass? I feel like that's a good business decision. I think so. So if you listen to this podcast and you enjoy it, uh, talk to your boss. Um, figure out who is in charge of your company, the CEO, the CFO, who's on the board, and and come to them. You know, bring bring our Patreon to them, and uh, and tell them that this is this is something worth supporting. Those sorts of those sorts of fuckers are always looking for some way to you know do the right thing, yeah, um, and and support good causes um, in ways that. Uh, are not controversial. And I think that a podcast hosted by two straight white men and a queer person of color is the perfect place to start. Just enough balance. Yeah. And if you've already become a Patreon, see if you can expense it through your accounting department. <laughs> it's it's your, your monthly expense for um, charity. We don't care if you're spending other people's money on it. Uh, it all goes into our pockets. So whatever you have to do, this is not a endorsement of any sort of fraud or anything. But we are not tax know, experts. <laughs> but there are plenty of legal types of fraud as well. So if you are one of those people that knows how to make that work, and you can pitch some of the, that money our way, if you know where uh, Jeff Bezos is. Um, tax haven is and where all that money is you know where to find us we'll take a one one thousandth of that and we'd be good forever oh my god i wonder what one one thousandth of his net worth is (laughs) honestly still more money than we could probably conceive of this is important all right journalism 1.96 or sorry 196.2 196.2 billion as of June 28th. Pull out my calculator. 
count the correct number of zeros. Oh, my calculator doesn't go up that high. <laughs> you make too much money, basis. <laughs> nope, there it is. There it is. I had to flip it sideways. <laughs> Times. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Give us one one thousandth. That's, how much is that? Like 1.9 million? Uh, it's 200 million. Oh, oh, come on. The things we could do with $200 million. Oh, I don't even know what I could do. Oh, my goodness. I could get my media empire off the ground. Yeah, we, we can force or in, encourage uh, a million people to listen to us. <laughs> we could we could hire an army of paid interns to harass people at other major media companies. Yep. Yeah. We would not be corporate shell sellouts. We could hire an army of paid interns to just get that college credit and not actually have to do anything at all and just get a paycheck. <laughs> Perfect. What's the point of this episode? <laughs> Spy movies. Spy movies. Bad? <laughs> Spy Isn't movies. Bad? Bad, but with three question marks. And in all caps. Is it an Ouroboros kind of bad where it can be good again? But was it ever good? TBA. <gasps> no. dun, dun, dun. Um, I feel hopeful for the trajectory that the, the spy film genre is heading in especially considering how the tangential genres of police dramas and stuff have been taking um i'm thinking of mayor of east town in particular on hbo max uh that follows a a cop who so happens to be female but is not overtly feminine is very like rustic and down home and it's like an actual person who just happens to be a cop and i'm hoping that more and more of what we see out of the spy thriller genre follows that ideology of telling human stories but with the espionage backdrop if anything um we still want our media to be fun so um don't be afraid to be fun disasters thank mm -hmm. you please we want that no one wants a, like especially if they if they you know steal our idea and make the first gay bond they make it overly serious we're gonna be very upset all right it has to be a little ridiculous get smart but gay <laughs> there you fucking go oh how much more fun would that be that'd be fun um you bring back the rock and steve carell it'd be great there's your gay romance yeah who's the top anyways it doesn't matter <laughs> It's good both ways. I think at the end of the day, too, it's important to say that there is room for all of these things as long as they are allowed to and indeed forced to exist within their context, right? You can have a hyper-masculine action thriller and you can have a really complex character-driven thriller. Um you know, it, it it's not to say that one thing can or can't exist, but it turns into that issue of thinking about why they exist and, and why you enjoy that particular kind of media and also the messages that are being shared with it, right? If we mm -hmm. want to continue having James Bond happen, right, 
I certainly do. I don't even like Daniel Craig, but I'm going to keep watching him because there's a there's a nostalgia there, right? Um, and because they are so delightfully predictable, it's it's like pulling on a warm blanket that blows up every 15 seconds. But <laughs> there there's a value in going into these films as if not a scholarly exercise, just to just some recognition of what it's trying to tell you and and what that can teach you about your world and the things that you come to expect from from cinema. It doesn't have to be every time you watch a movie, but it should be most of the times that you watch a movie. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually... Did I stutter?